Our teaching tonight picks up right where we left off just a couple minutes ago in Acts chapter 9. We're going to pick it up with verse 19 and go to 31. And here we read, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. And day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is God's word. Our first lesson, again, was that summary of the most famous conversion in world history, that of Saul of Tarsus, and it gives us not only like his whole conversion experience, but it reminds us like he was a leading persecutor of the Christians. He was present at the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He was so zealous in his inquisition of the Christians, but he was being recruited to be sent off to other cities so that he might terrorize Christians there and imprison them, torture them, kill them, etc. While he's on one of these trips on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus comes and appears to him in light, like enough of a light that it knocks him off of his donkey. He's blinded by the light and Jesus encounters him as his risen Lord and Savior and calls him to repentance. And sure enough, Saul is humbled, he's broken down, he's repentant, and he converts. And this is going to completely turn not just Saul, but human history upside down. And his worldview is completely revolutionized by this. He is welcomed into the church in Damascus by Ananias and the fellow believers there. He is humbled, he is repentant, and he's about to be used by God to be the single biggest force in the history of the Christian church to speak about the truth of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the inclusion of the gospel for all people, including and especially the Gentile world. What's maybe most interesting to me in all of this, however, is that Saul of Tarsus is the idea of God is not new to Saul. The Bible's not new to Saul and religion's not new to Saul. He's an expert in these things. He's not an atheist. He's rising quickly amongst the Pharisee rank. He reads his Bible daily. He goes to the temple daily. He makes the sacrifices. He prays the prayers. He's around all of that. And yet very clearly what we're being told here, he's not a believer. He's not a believer. It's a very important distinction to make. Most of the adult Christians that I know that are particularly mature in faith have had some kind of, not to this extent, not this dramatic, but some kind of awakening type of experience. 
And I'll just, I'll just speak for myself here. I can tell you personally, I was born and raised in a Christian household. I was baptized as a kid. I went through Christian schooling. I went to church. I said my prayers. I could pass all the theology tests. If you ask me now, James, when you were a teenager, did you love God? I cannot honestly say that I did. At the time, I certainly would have told you because I was smart enough to not say the wrong thing. I could tell you I was afraid of God. I could tell you I absolutely believed God existed and he was present. If you said, do you sincerely love God? I don't think I could say that. Not me now looking back at me, me then. It wasn't until God broke me down It wasn't until God humbled me and let me experience a certain amount of his grace that I actually was able to say. He also allowed me at that time to sit under, you know, I think some really quality Christian teaching. And all of that played into the idea of me being a Christian today. Now, when you look at Saul of Tarsus, something very interesting is happening here. And the idea is, Like, okay, so he's been religious, but he's broken down now. He's repentant of his sins. And God is now leading him to actually go and proclaim the gospel. And he does so. And this is the reaction of the people in Damascus. They say, wait a second. We're having trouble making sense of all of this. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. See, nobody ever doubted Paul's talent. He was very quickly becoming a leader amongst the Pharisees. He very clearly had aptitude and leadership potential. He's using those exact same gifts now, having been filtered through a humbling conversion, to now articulate that the historical facts surrounding the ministry and resurrection of Jesus Christ perfectly fit the Hebrew scripture's portrayal of the coming Messiah. He's boldly proclaiming that and neither the Christians nor the Jews in Damascus have any idea what to do with Paul at this point. Now, we're told actually in verse 23, kind of an interesting thing at the very beginning, it says, after many days had gone by. Now, many days means about three years. And we know this because if you read Paul's own words in Galatians, in Galatians 1, He tells us that there was a period at this time that he goes off to Arabia for three years, uh, presumably to study God's word. He goes off into the wilderness. Some would even suggest he goes off to Mount Sinai and at the foot of Mount Sinai, he studies the Bible with like the lens of Jesus Christ as the center of the Hebrew scriptures. And he eventually, after three years, goes back to Damascus and people in Damascus are still not having it, not at all. And uh, they want to kill him at that point. What the believers in Damascus do is they hide him, they sneak him out of the city, and now he's on his way down to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church, understandably, wants no part of him either. You can imagine why. So this is the same guy who several years earlier had been doing things like imprisoning, torturing, and killing family members of the people in the church in Jerusalem. Imagine what it would be like to be like a widow or a fatherless orphan in the church in Jerusalem And to have to see this guy who killed a family member a couple years prior come back and look that guy in the eyes and he's saying, I'm one of you. You know, I'm part of of the believing family here. They were not having it. And you understand why. It wasn't until a guy who was famous for his encouraging, gracious faith named Barnabas comes alongside him, puts his arm around him, and he vouches for Saul of Tarsus to the church in Jerusalem 
and the church starts to welcome him. And actually, Galatians, he says to us in Galatians that he uh, becomes very well acquainted with the Apostle Peter at this time. He actually stays at his home for 15 days. Uh, he becomes very well acquainted with James, the brother of Jesus, who is the bishop of the church in Jerusalem at the time. And for the next 15 days, what he does is he storms through Jerusalem to anybody that's willing to listen. He is proclaiming, again, this idea that uh, it's debate and it's logic and it's all of that. The evidence of a resurrected Savior in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and how that perfectly fits the prophesied image of the Messiah given in the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, the Jews there have the same reaction to him that the people up in Damascus did, and they conspire to kill him and they want him to die. And so the believers in Jerusalem at this point then take Saul of Tarsus and they take him up to a city called Caesarea. They ship him back home to a place called Tarsus, where he's from, and he's going to stay there for the next decade. It isn't until this very guy Barnabas comes back up, recruits him at one point in the near future, and brings him down to minister in one of my favorite churches in the New Testament, probably my favorite church in the New Testament, in part because I think it's uniquely relevant for us here at St. Marcus, but it's the church in Syrian Antioch. It's the first multi-ethnic church. It's the church from which all of Saul's missionary journeys are launched. It's the church where believers in Jesus Christ are first called Christians. Notice they don't call themselves Christians. They are called Christians. I'm going to come back to that point a little bit later on, just so file it away right now. 13 years later, God is going to send him on a mission trip. This, by the way, teaches us something about um, this seminary process. We just had our church body's seminary graduation and assignment uh, like a couple weeks ago. Anybody who thinks Saul just got up, converted, and started as a missionary? Not exactly. For starters, he, after he converts, he goes off to study the Bible three years in Arabia. And then he does 10 years worth of local ministry up in Tarsus. So he doesn't go on a missionary call until 13 years after his conversion. What that tells each of us practically is embrace the idea of studying the Bible right now. Get in your Bible daily right now because you don't know what God is going to ask you to do 13 years from now. Yeah. Well, the last verse in the entire text tells us that there is a unique period of peace and expansion going on in the church at this point. It's expanding through not only Judea, but Samaria and Galilee and the, the believers are at peace with one another. They're encouraged by the Holy Spirit. They're gifted by the Spirit. And they're increasing in number. That's where our text ends. And I got three application points for you here today. Number one, Saul starts going by Paul. Just in the first 10 minutes of this, I've probably already flip-flopped back and forth non-consciously between calling Saul of Tarsus both Saul and Paul, Right? Because it's the same guy. But for some of you who are relatively new to the Bible, that is really confusing, and I apologize for that. But I would also say every society's convention for making names is confusing. Every society's naming system is confusing. Uh, so, for instance, if you think America's naming conventions are not confusing, let me just remind you, some of you have middle names. Others of you don't have middle names. Some of you have hyphenated last names. Others of you don't have hyphens in your last names. Over half the women in this room right now have the middle name Marie. Why? I don't know. It's just, if, like a, if you ever have to bet on what a woman's middle name is, you bet on Marie, because that's the smart money, right? Uh, we have abbreviations in our names that make zero sense. My name is James, and so sometimes it gets shortened to 
Jim, which is also one syllable. It just changes the vowels. It makes zero sense. Sometimes Henry is shortened to Hank, and the weirdest one of all is John that sometimes gets shortened to Jack. They're the exact same number of letters. It just sounds completely different. Why? No reason. And so here's what I'm trying to say. When you look at the Bible, and sometimes I've gotten Bible students who say, the Bible's so weird on names. Nope, you're weird on names too. Every society is equally weird on names. It's just weird in a different way. And actually, the Bible's names make a little bit more sense in the sense of what the, they change them to. So for instance, maybe the most famous name change in biblical history is Peter, who originally had two other names, Simon and Cephas. But Jesus, at one point, changes his name to Peter. And something similar is going to happen from Abram to Abraham or Jacob to Israel or a number of other different spots like this. And what it always is, is it's a public symbol of somebody's life missional change. God changes it because it's somebody's public demonstration that maybe their character has changed or at least their mission and purpose in life has now changed. Okay, so we get to Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus, he's from Tarsus, which is a good Roman city, but he's got ethnic Jewish heritage that he's very proud of in an unhealthy almost kind of way. He uh, takes a lot of pride in his Jewish heritage, which actually becomes like the functional identity of his life. And he, he goes then by the good Jewish name of Saul. What's interesting, a lot of Christians, in fact, I guess, I'm guessing most of you tonight, if I asked you, would say, when does Saul's name change to Paul? I, I'm guessing most people would say, well, God changes his name at his conversion. No, he doesn't. The text doesn't say that. In fact, we read the text earlier, and after his conversion, he's still going by Saul. So not only does his name not change to Paul after his conversion immediately, or at his conversion, but God isn't the one who changes his name. It's not actually until we get to verse or chapter 13, verse 9, that it says, Saul, who also was called Paul. Here's the point. Jesus doesn't change Saul's name to Paul. Saul changes Saul's name to Paul. Why? The first response that people will sometimes give probably is, well, he's going to be ministering to a lot of Gentiles and therefore to choose a more Romanized type of name uh, might make some sense as far as like ministering to the Gentiles. There's probably, you know, I'm certain there's truth in that, but there's a bigger point here. There's a bigger point here that I think is applicable to every single one of us who are, won't necessarily change our names to minister to Gentiles. The bigger point is this. When you experience the grace of Jesus Christ, you will consciously choose to present yourself in a different way for the sake of your witness. That's as short as I could get it, but it's still kind of long, so I'm going to say it one more time. When you experience the grace of Jesus Christ, you will consciously choose to present yourself to the world in a different way for the sake of your witness. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, to the Jews, I was like a Jew, and to the Greeks, I was like a Greek, so that by all means possible, God might through me save some. See, he's different from person to person in context to context. Some people actually accused Paul of being sort of wishy-washy and inauthentic. Modern people, modern people are very interested in like presenting my authentic self to everyone else. Paul's got an authentic self, but his authentic self is I'm outward focused. I live for other people. Therefore, I don't care what you call me. Whatever you're comfortable calling me, call me that. Because it's not about me. The grace of Jesus Christ, that was for me. And so now I lay my life down for you. And you can call me whatever you're comfortable with in your context. See, that's Saul's new authentic self. In the past, he wasn't like that. 
In the past, Saul presented him his resume, his trophies, his accomplishments, his ethnic heritage, his education pedigree, and he presented all that stuff about himself. That's where he found his identity. Now, now, Paul is uniquely open about his weaknesses, his struggles, his failures, his addictions, his sins. Why? To contrast the fact that his righteousness is not in who he is or what he does. His righteousness comes from Jesus Christ alone. Once you're a Christian, you have to stop pretending to be something that you're not. I forbid it. You have to be totally honest, even in the ugliness of that honesty, because it helps contrast with the beauty and the perfection of Jesus Christ. You want to hear something kind of wild? And the whole concept of Saul's name change, so this is a little bit of a Hebrew note, but Hebrew in its original form didn't actually have vowels. It, like vowel pointing was added to it later. And so what you ended up having was a lot of consonants that could be used, pronounced the same, but for different words. And actually, in the Hebrew, what you get is two different words that have the same basic consonants that you could pronounce maybe shal or shaol. That's, I'm just transliterating it here for you into uh, our letters. But the first one you probably can recognize is where we get the name Saul from. Some of you might recognize actually the second name is a word that is used in the Hebrew scriptures to describe a place of the underworld where souls of dead people go. Something that's like the realm of the dead or it's maybe the closest equivalent we might think to it is hell, Sheol. I want you to understand what Saul is doing when he changes his name voluntarily. Saul is a guy who not only murdered other Christians, but he was a guy who was totally spiritually dead. He came to realize that. And when he changed his name, he changed it to a Romanized Latin version called Paulos, which means small or humble. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying about himself. What he's saying is he converted from death, Sheol, to life. What he's saying is he converted from bigness in his own eyes to smallness in his own eyes and God's bigness in his eyes. What he's saying is I've converted from pride and being puffed up in myself to humility and finding my identity solely in Christ alone. In other words, the opposite of Saul's pride, which led to his death, is Saul's humility and repentance, which having experienced the grace of Jesus Christ then led to life. You see that? It's a very interesting self-inflicted name change. Now, some of you don't love when we get kind of in the weeds on the deep kind of mind-bending language stuff like that. If you really don't like it, you've probably already left St. Marcus a long time ago. But uh, some of you that do like it, even if you don't like it, let me just say this. The bigger point is this. The world doesn't need to see how great you want to pretend to be. The best missionary in world history learns to talk about his weaknesses, his failures, his sins, his shortcomings, and the bigness and the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ. And what that means is if you want to be used by God to reach more people for the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ, stop presenting a filtered illusion to the world of having it together. Humble yourself before him. Humble yourself before the world. And just talk about the bigness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. All right. So, 
for each of us, transition from Saul to Paul. The second uh, application, welcoming repentant sinners. Another really interesting point happens in this conversion process, and and it happens twice. It happened once in our first lesson with Ananias and once in our, our sermon text with Barnabas. And what it is is this. Essentially, Saul, before he becomes the apostle Paul, in his conversion, after he has been knocked off his donkey, repented, God calls to Ananias, a believer, in Damascus and says, I want you to go and essentially usher Saul into the Christian church. And Ananias says, no, I don't want to do that. I'm the exact kind of guy that this guy was coming to this city to terrorize, persecute, and kill. I don't want to do that. What God says to him is, listen, Ananias, I've shown you an extraordinary amount of grace in welcoming you into my family. I want you to now go and show that same grace to another. And furthermore, my basic method of operating in human history has been to take the weak things of the world and use them mightily in order to shame the proud. And I'm going to do that exact same thing through this guy, Saul of Tarsus, too. So what does Ananias do? He goes and here's, this is interesting. It says he places his hands on Saul and he says, brother Saul. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about this whole placing your hands on someone thing. Remember last week in Samaria, the Jewish leaders at the church in Jerusalem went, and the Jews hated the Samaritans ethnically, they went and they placed their hands upon the Samaritans in order to transfer and, and, and you know, share the spirit and the power of the spirit with them. What did we learn? We learned that touch, touch is so important in human existence for psychological reasons, for physical reasons, for spiritual reasons. Touch requires proximity, it requires agreeability, and when there has been hostility between two parties, it requires then also forgiveness. Human touch requires proximity, agreeability, and forgiveness. Now, what does this mean? If two things that I want to say up on this, and, and just stay with me here, because I have two, it's, I think it's two really important points. First of all, when Jesus, in the light, knocks Saul off of his donkey, do you remember the first thing that he says to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, let me ask you a question that I want you to wrestle with for just a second. Why does he say, why do you persecute me? Jesus has ascended into heaven. Saul has been persecuting the church. So why doesn't he say, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know what the answer is? It's because Jesus so closely identifies with the church that when you persecute his church, you are persecuting Jesus. That absolutely flies in the face of American individualism. That absolutely flies in the face of something that I've heard dozens and dozens and dozens of times as a pastor. Pastor, I can have a relationship with Jesus Christ apart from any relationship with an organized religion or apart from the church. No, you can't. From Jesus' own mouth, no, you can't. He so closely identifies with the church that way. What that also means, and I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to make some of you uncomfortable and you're not going to like it, but from Scripture, tell me that I'm wrong. What it means is if you know anyone, and we all do, who self-identifies as a Christian and yet has no part and desires nothing to be part of the Christian church or engage in the Christian church, you should assume that person is not a Christian. I say that again? If you know somebody who self-identifies as a Christian and they refuse to engage with the Christian church, God's body on earth at all, you should assume that they're not a Christian. Do I know as a fact that they're not a Christian? No. But Jesus also says, by their fruits, you will know them. And so you should assume that. 
And so somebody says, well, but they self-identify as a Christian. Well, recall what I said to you earlier. The earliest Christians did not self-identify as Christians. They identified as followers of Christ, but it was others who called them Christians. 21st century people love to self-referentially define themselves. There's not in life you don't always get to do that. From a Christian standpoint, others, the church gets to call you a Christian. You don't really get to call yourself a Christian. And anybody who wants to push back against that, let me just ask you this. Do you agree with the statement that everybody who thinks themselves smart or calls themselves smart is in fact smart? Do you think that everybody who considers themselves funny is in fact funny? Of course not. Because you don't get to self-identify those ways. Other people get to decide. Same is true as a Christian. It is not possible, according to the Bible, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ apart from having a relationship with the people that he indwells by his spirit. One of the reasons that makes us so uncomfortable is because it's total heresy to American individualism, and yet it's scripturally undeniable. Now, more specifically to the point of Barnabas and Saul and Ananias here, Someone we learn cannot come into the Christian church without being confronted by Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and called to repentance. But the second part, the human part with us, is someone also can't, generally speaking, enter into the Christian church without another Christian inviting them, compassionately putting their arm around them, and welcoming them into the body of believers. That means maybe especially people with pasts. And quite honestly, we've all got issues and we've all got pasts. Welcome them. People who have hurt you, forgive them and welcome them. People who have made a complete mess of their life and they have burned tons of bridges and they've been completely publicly stigmatized, which is, by the way, again, super interesting in the modern world that considers itself paradoxically very open-minded and yet is also very clearly moralistic. Like, paradoxically, I can't believe philosophers have not more publicly pushed the narrative on this. You can't be both open-minded and super moralistic. The whole purpose, so far as I can tell, of something like Twitter today is that it primarily exists to hunt and burn witches, right? Build a bridge towards those individuals. Not the individuals who are witch hunting. They're too proud and God still has to humble them. Build a bridge towards the people who have been stigmatized in society who are very alone and need to experience grace. Put your arm around them. Welcome them in. Welcome them and their problems. The Holy Spirit will work through all that stuff in due time. Okay? I know this is God's desire for us because of the last point, the ultimate Barnabas. Uh, I know it's God's purpose for us because it's exactly what the ultimate Barnabas, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, has done and continues to do for us still today. Think about it like this. If you were to go home tonight and there was a six foot, four inch, 250 pound, rocked up, 18 year old, uh, rough looking male that you didn't know standing in your living room when you walked into your house, you would probably turn and run. Some of you might, you know, grab a weapon or I don't know what, right? Because you'd be terrified by that. On the other hand, if that same individual was standing there, but when you walked in, your teenage son had his arm around the kid, and was saying, hey, mom, I want you to introduce you to my new best friend from school. You would have a very different perspective of that kid that you don't know. You know what Jesus Christ has done for us? You know, on the cross, he paid for all of our sins. 
all of our pride, all of our immorality, all of our stuffiness, all of it, all of it. Well, what he did then is he put his arm around us and he walked us into the most holy place of God, God's house. Not so that just that we could have a meal there and sit down at the table, although we're going to celebrate that tonight too, but he did it so that God would adopt us into his family eternally. Well, do we still have issues? Yes, of course we have issues. For some of us, it's going to take years to work through some of those issues. For some of us, we're not going to actually work through all of those issues this side of heaven. That's not the most important point. The most important part is our status has changed. Our status before God has changed. Because God, when he walks into the divine court system now, he doesn't walk into the court to prosecute us anymore because Jesus was already prosecuted in our place. Instead, now when he walks into the courtroom, he does it for the purposes of an adoption where in our baptisms, he places his triune name upon us and says, you are forever part of this family and belong in this house. The longer time we spend in that home, the more God will transform our value system according to his value system. I have no doubts about that. And we'll be motivated, motivated by it the longer we look at our brother Jesus who laid everything down in order to rescue us back into the family. Jesus then says, go and love and do likewise. Love someone who is rougher than you so that the Holy Spirit can sanctify that person too. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, while we were still sinners, before we had ever had any thought of wanting to love you or confess a sin or worship you, while we were in our deepest state of sin, you died for us. Since we have already been adopted into your family and because our future is absolutely secure, help us to have hearts that, like Barnabas and especially like you, are willing to take some risks and love those that the world sometimes refuses to love. We ask that you bless this movement, that it may glorify your name. In your name we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.